0: Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Zara Pavani and I'll be in the hot seat today. We're going to be talking about the world of lawyers, who we are, what we do and what happens when things go wrong. We're delighted to welcome our family law experts onto the podcast. Peter Mitchell of King's Council, who is a senior renowned barrister in the world of family law based at 29 Bedford Row Chambers in London. And our very own Ros Beaver, family solicitor and head of the Erwin Mitchell family team, which is the largest family team in the UK. Together, we're going to have a discussion about the world of family law. What do different lawyers do and what happens when things go wrong? Thank you to Peter and Ros for joining me today. Ros, can I start with you? When we say the word lawyer, not everyone knows what we mean. So to try and help our listeners, I'm going to go back to basics and break this term down to just two things, a solicitor and a barrister. Now, you are a family lawyer and your particular role is that of a solicitor. Can you tell us what that specifically entails?
1: Yes, thanks, Sarah. A solicitor and a barrister are both legally qualified, but the distinction really is in the relationship with the client. So the solicitor's role is to liaise with the client and effectively to project manage their case to a conclusion. And whilst that journey is ongoing, the solicitor will not only provide legal advice, they will also coordinate other expert advisors, one of whom is a barrister. And a barrister, is going to talk to you, I'm sure, about barristers. But we also have other experts who, who we involve throughout that journey. And we are there as a consistent point of contact for the client from start to finish.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for that, Ros. Peter, coming on to you. Your role as a barrister, but to give you your full formal title, you are King's Counsel. Now, my view is, and following on from what Ros is saying, solicitors and barristers very much work together for the good of the client and the client's case. So we're a team.
2: Can you explain where you exactly come in and what you do in your role? Sure. First and foremost, I'm an advocate. People think of barristers in court on their feet. But these days, advocacy takes place as much on paper as it does orally in the presentation of written documents to the court and to the other side. Those documents inevitably set the scene for when one does stand up to speak. And it's my experience that a well-presented position statement can influence the court every bit as much as a clever oral argument. So whether I do it in writing or orally, it's my job to persuade the court that my client's case is right, and that the other side's case is wrong. Now, I get caught several times a week, so I quickly learn which arguments are in favour and which are not. In my particular sphere, family law, family finance, my frequent exposure to judges allows me to develop an instinct about how to approach the issues we encounter in all of our cases, housing needs, maintenance sums, maintenance terms, and so on. Now, that experience informs my second function, which is to advise. I aim to give balanced, pragmatic, understandable advice to the solicitors who instruct me and to my client. Once I'm instructed, I like to be part of the team. So we'll speak regularly to my instructing solicitor about the case and offer advice and support to them. I try to be available when they need me. I'll often advise a client in consultation, usually outside court, but we'll be advising them at court too. The primary focus of my advice will be practical. What are the range of outcomes in the case? How can we reach a negotiated settlement within those parameters, but always informed by the likely outcome if we cannot settle the case and have to ask the court to make a decision. Now, my third function is to negotiate, usually when we're at court, but increasingly at out-of-court meetings convened specifically for that purpose. I will usually, but not invariably, be negotiating against another barrister, and it's a small world. I usually know my opponents and that helps. That's incredibly helpful, Peter. And
0: from what you've both said to me, it's very much team client. It's about a collaborative approach. Turning, Ros, to when things go wrong. What if someone has lied in court about their assets, about their money, about their property in a family case? What will the court do? And can the innocent party appeal the court's decision?
1: Well, it's not the judge's fault, so there's not going to be a necessity to go through the appeal process. Probably the first thing we do, Peter and I would liaise as our team to try and work out what we were going to do. And very much this would depend on whether it was somebody who'd not been truthful. And in in that situation, then we would try and support them as best we could. We would encourage them to be absolutely open and honest and to make full disclosure at that point and support them in that journey. If, on the other hand, we're dealing with a client who is absolutely furious because the other party has not told the truth, then we would guide them through a process of what we call set aside. And we would look at whether or not there was the ability to go back to court to set aside an order that had been made on the premise of of an untruth.
0: That's really clear, Ros. It seems to me that what we do there is you look at solutions, you're finding a solution to the problem. Absolutely. So, Peter, what if it's actually only a really small thing that somebody has lied about? like an old post office account with, say, £100 in it. What happens
2: then? Well, the first things I would say is that although most of the cases occur when somebody's told a lie or committed fraud, to use a more emotive term, it isn't only lies which can undo a financial order. So in the House of Lords case of Livesey and Jenkins, which set the whole of this area of case law um, on its current path, the wife, just hadn't said that she was about to get married again because she didn't know that she had to say that. Her non-disclosure was not intentional or even negligent. It was inadvertent. But it was highly relevant because it was material to the decision that the court had made about how to divide the assets. Putting it differently, had the court known that she was about to get married, it would have made a different decision. So before the court sets aside an order for non-disclosure, it needs to be satisfied that the concealed fact would or might have made a difference to the order being set aside. So to return to your example of the forgotten post office account with £100 in it, it probably wouldn't persuade a court to interfere, even though it should have been disclosed in the first place. Otherwise, where the line is drawn will depend upon the facts of the case. So an account with £100,000 in it that's concealed is likely to be material in most cases, but not in a case worth hundreds of millions of pounds or in a case where the award was assessed by reference to a person's needs and they've received every every penny that they need. That's what judges and lawyers mean when they speak about material non-disclosure.
0: So we've got to get the facts right, haven't we, Peter? You've really got to try and get your facts right. I mean, that's going to help everybody in the first instance, as in as in your representation as well as the judge. You've
2: got to think about the facts that you've been presented with and whether, in fact, they make a difference. And of course, if they make a difference, you've then got to ask yourself how much it's going to cost to remedy that defect. And if, in fact, it's going to cost more than you'll get, it's probably not worth rocking the boat, even though you've been lied to. Makes
0: sense. Thank you, Peter. That really makes sense. Ros, let's get a little controversial with this. Is there a difference if somebody lies or deliberately conceals their assets so they're purposefully holding something back? Or what if someone just made an honest mistake? They've forgotten about an account or forgotten about an old pension.
1: Is there a difference? Yes, there is a difference. Usually the person who seeks to set aside because of the lie has to prove both non-disclosure and materiality but if the non-disclosure is fraudulent the court will set aside the order unless the non-disclosure can show that it wasn't material so in other words the burden of proof shifts in those cases which involve fraud
0: so it's not easy is it Ros? it, it seems it's to it's not be
1: straightforward that... no. it's tricky zara
0: yeah, so it seems to me that's when people really need advice. They need they desperately advice.
1: need advice at that point. And at that point, that is a particular area where almost certainly I would bring in Peter, who's an expert in set aside or other barristers who are experts in set aside. And we would look at it because the costs and the uh, it, you've got to look at proportionality and it might be a Pyrrhic victory in the end.
0: That makes sense. Peter,
1: what if you actually don't found out, find out for a really
0: long time that the person has lied? So the case is done and dusted. The judge has long since made his or her decision and the monies and the property have been divided or already
2: dealt with. How do you approach that situation? Well, sir, it's important to emphasise that in um, set aside cases, there is no limitation period. The key is not the time between the order and discovery of non disclosure. That could be a short time or it can be years or even decades. The key is that there must be no significant delay once the non disclosure is discovered. Of course, a person can take a reasonable time to consider what they have discovered, to take legal advice and perhaps to seek an explanation. But undue delay will result in the court refusing to interfere even if they're satisfied that there has been material non-disclosure. So the clear point to take from this is that it's essential that legal advice is taken quickly once any non-disclosure is discovered.
0: Peter, what is quickly? Are we talking weeks?
2: Are we talking months? What's quickly? We're talking days or weeks after the discovery of non-disclosure. There Uh, have been cases where a person, yes, there have been cases where people have delayed by months and the courts have said, well, we would have interfered, but we're not going to now. You've left it too long. So speed is of the essence in these cases. Okay, good to know. Roz, what if someone has disclosed
0: their assets at the beginning of the case, openly, honestly? But then things change during the case, particularly before the case has been settled or a final decision has been made by a judge. What then if there's been a change, but nobody really knew about it?
1: Any change has got to be made absolutely clear to everybody involved. When you enter the process, when you separate, it's not point in time that you disclose your assets and it's a once and for all process that duty to keep on providing information is ongoing up until a final order or settlement is made and even if something is within your contemplation but it's not happened there is still a requirement to make clear and to be open and honest about it because if you're not then odds are on that you're going to face a potential set-aside application and Therefore, probably the best thing that I could advise is that keep speaking to your solicitor. They will then, you know, we'll probably bring in Peter and say, This is this development's happened. It might be that a family member dies and leaves you some money. You must disclose it because it might not make any difference to the overall case, but it surely will if you don't disclose it.
0: So communication is key,
1: having that regular
0: honest, straightforward communication between solicitor and client?
1: On an ongoing basis. And I know that clients worry about the costs of communication with with their solicitor, but you can do it at key points. Make sure you keep on top of things and, and you're open and honest throughout the entire process.
0: Thank you. Peter, if a judge decides to set aside his order or her order, then what happens? Can the judge just
2: put it right? And make a different decision? Well, that is a very topical decision because Ros and I have just won a case in the Court of Appeal which turns on this very issue. The textbook answer is that the relevant rules of court provide that where the court decides to set aside a financial remedy order, it gives directions for a rehearing of the financial remedy proceedings or may make such other orders as may be appropriate to dispose of the application that's the language that is used It's a very broad discretion at its simplest the court can simply remedy the defect take the case of an undisclosed million pounds in a case where all the other assets have already been shared 50 50 and that million pounds would have been two had it been known about The judge is going to say, well, well, why do we need to go all the way back to the beginning of this when all I need to do is to share that million pounds, 500,000 pounds each, and we're back to where we should have been? But it's not usually as simple as that. So in the case that Ros and I have just done, a case called goddard Watts, the parties had done a deal in 2010. They disclosed their assets and they'd agreed how they should be divided. Sometime afterwards, Mrs. Goddard Watts discovered that her husband had lied to her about some trusts and that, in fact, he had much more money than he said he had. She applied to set aside that order and the case came back before another judge. It was set aside. And at the re-hearing, Mrs. Goddard Watts said, well, this family company that we had has gone up in value and I want a chunk of that. Mr. Goddard Watts said, no, there's no need for that. All you need is a chunk of the money I didn't disclose back in 2010. And the court agreed with him about that. And there the story would have ended. But for the fact that Mrs. Goddard-Watts then discovered sometime later that in fact throughout the 2015 proceedings, Mr. Goddard-Watts had been telling a whole new set of lies, this time about the value of his business. So she applied again to set it aside and it was again set aside because the lies that he were telling, was telling might have been material. When the case eventually came before a judge for the third time, the court again allowed, refused to allow Mrs. Goddard-Watts to rerun the proceedings and simply gave her a little top-up to meet her needs. Mrs. Goddard-Watts thought that was unfair, that Mr. Goddard-Watts had so trampled over her rights that the court needed to look at it afresh. She went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal agreed with her It said in this case that the 2022 judge had been wrong to build his solution to the case upon the 2015 order when that itself was the product of lies. That the husband's thwarts were so great in this case that the only fair thing was to allow the wife to start again with a completely clean sheet. Although the court was very anxious to say it couldn't predict whether she would in fact get more money as a result of that. And the other important thing that they said was that on the facts of this case, fraud will be the lens through which the other, other relevant factors in the case, the passage of time since separation being chief amongst them, should be viewed. But the court declined to lay down any hard and fast rules and emphasise that even where fraud is present, the court need not necessarily start again from scratch. So at the end of this rather long explanation, the answer is that which I gave at the beginning. It all depends. My experience tells me that the court will always be slow to order a full rehearing if it can remedy the non-disclosure without doing so. And Peter, I think that will be, you know, welcome to lots of people because you don't want to go through it all over again.
0: You don't want to keep in a process of litigation for such a long period of time unless you
2: absolutely have to. Well, the answers are to that is... Most people don't, but there may be facts which make somebody say, "Actually, I, I want to. I want a completely fresh, not a second bite of the cherry. I want. I want a fresh bite of the cherry." Um, and, and Mrs. Goddard Watt's case tells us why. So, in that case, the value of assets that they would have shared have gone up very, very significantly. In her case, is I haven't yet shared in them fairly. I should share in them fairly now. And as a result of what's happened since we separated, that share will be larger than it would have been. And the husband's only got himself to blame because he told lies. And justice needs to seem to be done. It needs, somebody needs to get
0: justice. I understand. That's right. Thank you for that. Ros, are there any other consequences if someone has lied?
1: There are, Zara. I mean, the most usual would be costs. So in family cases in in nearly every family case each party pays their own costs and in cases where one party has behaved badly a judge has the ability to order the other party to pay their costs so that's the most common of course if someone's lied it's perjury and that in turn can lead to allegations of contempt of court and contempt of court in turn can lead to a, a period of imprisonment. It's very rare, but that's a sanction that's available. And finally, there could be an adjustment, albeit slight in most cases, to the way in which a judge determines that assets should be distributed. So a compensatory award, if you like.
0: That's really interesting, Roz. I mean, I mean, the key lesson here is tell the truth, And if you don't tell the truth, confess and then show some remorse so that your legal team can help you. And if somebody does lie, there is things that we can do about it, things that we can try and help. Peter, we've learned today that you are often the voice in court. And for so many, the court experience can be incredibly daunting. Tell me, I'm really interested to know, do you ever get nervous when you're speaking in court? And also, what advice would you give to someone appearing in court for the very first time?
2: was I certainly do get nervous. I always want to give my best performance on the day, and, and I don't think an element of nerves is a bad thing. It sharpens the focus and ensures that the adrenaline is flowing. As for advice for beginners, I think I'd say this. One, do your homework, no shortcuts. You risk humiliation if you're not properly prepared. Two, think about what you want to say and why you want to say it. Three, be succinct don't bore your audience. And four, be nice. Remember that judges are human beings and they want to get it right. Help them to help your client to the right answer. And never forget that they were beginners too once. That's great,
0: Peter. I think such valuable advice for so many. Ros, I'm going to end with you. The process of divorce, speaking to a lawyer, it's so overwhelming for so many, regardless of whether the case is in court. And then if somebody lies or something goes wrong, it can really push people over the edge into breaking point. What can we do to help people? And what do you do and your team specifically do to provide solutions and support?
1: I think the first thing that we try to do And try to keep on doing throughout the case is to listen to the client it's super important that we listen to exactly what the client wants to achieve it's then our duty to provide clear advice to them legal advice professional advice and the most important thing probably is to make sure that we bring in our team whether that's our team internally where we've got other disciplines because we are a multi-service practice whether it's involving Peter or other barristers, because we need them. And they may be involved throughout the entire case, or they might just dip in and out. We, we have other experts that we involve throughout the process. We also try and think about the methods that might work for the client to get them to the end point. And we look at, whether or not they need some emotional support that might be from our internal counseling service or it might be that we identify experts therapeutic experts to come on board and help the client at the end of the day this is the client's case and actually being there and telling them or accessing other support services is the most important thing we can do and i think the other thing which i'll end on is probably being very, very transparent about costs and making sure that our clients know that there is a cost benefit analysis exercise to be done and making sure that there is complete transparency from the very beginning. Clients need advice and they need access to various experts and and that is multidisciplinary, but they also need to make sure that they're not spending too much on, litigation or resolving matters that will leave them in a in a difficult position later.
0: Thank you so much Ros and thank you so much Peter and that's it for today. Thanks for listening to this Irwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting then please do join us for our next episode. Goodbye for now.